0: Hey, everyone. It is Brandon Lee, host of this podcast called Escaping Rock Bottom. I just want to first uh, start out by saying thank you to everyone who is listening right now. If you happen to be watching on YouTube, on Facebook, or on my website, EscapingRockBottom.com, it is good to see everyone there. Uh, For those who are watching, I promise the video quality is going to improve over time. I got some lights coming. We'll change the background a little bit, but... um, Just wanted to get started and and get it up and running. And first, thank you to everyone who has gone on to my website and already subscribed uh, to this podcast. I'm already overwhelmed. I think I have over a 1,000 subscribers so far, and I am now recording my first ever podcast. I really... um I really wanted to do an introductory podcast first uh, to introduce myself to those who may not know me, those who may not have ever seen me on television before. Um, Again, my name is Brandon Lee. I'm a former news anchor out of Phoenix, Arizona. I worked at Channel 3 in Phoenix, 3TV. Um, I anchored the 5 p.m., the 6 p.m., the 9, and the 10 p.m. nightly. So I anchored a lot of news when I was in Arizona. I loved my time there and just recently left in December of 2018. Um, gosh, where do I begin? Uh, we usually say this is a qualifying part of our story um, in AA. I travel the country now and share my story uh, to thousands of people around the country who are willing to listen. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, I'll be able to share some of my experience, my strength and my hope with some of you at home. You know, I always start out with this statistic cause it's just mind boggling to me. If you think about this, 23 million Americans, 23 million Americans are identified as being some sort of an addict whether it's being addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol 23 million americans suffer from addiction and then there's this fact that only three million of the 23 million in this country who are identified as addicts will ever see help so only three million of those people will ever go to treatment will ever go to a 12-step program like aa or na so when you think about that And then multiply that number by at least five, right? Because every addict typically has a mom or a dad, a grandmother, grandfather, a brother or a sister or friends who are desperately seeking answers to help out that loved one, all right? So that's like over 100 million people impacted every single day about addiction in our country. And many of those people who will never seek treatment, or if you're a friend or a family member who knows somebody who's an addict, you've likely thrown your hands up into feet at some point and said, how the heck do I help my friend? Or how the heck do I help my son or my daughter who's addicted to drugs? And I'll be the first one to tell you, it is not easy. It is really hard, especially that bond between a parent and a child. So throughout this podcast and as we continue on over time, we'll go into depth Uh, about many of these issues. Um, I want you at home, the listener or the watcher, to email me questions that you have. Perhaps your son or your daughter is addicted to drugs and you just don't know what to do. I might be able to help. Um, So my qualifying story begins. Um, I was born back in 1980 in Orange County, California, Southern California. Um, I was raised in an upper middle class home. Uh, My parents were super successful in their businesses, uh, my mom sold real estate. my dad was in um, my dad was in politics and did a lot of public service for the community. Um, I have two older sisters, so I was the youngest child in the family uh, we 're all separated by about two years and um, you know it all really begins in childhood. Um, I always knew I always knew something was a little different about me. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I grew up with two older sisters and my older sisters would like <laughs> paint my nails. You know, they would paint like my nails with nail polish. Uh, we listened to a lot of Cyndi Lauper and a lot of Whitney Houston in uh, the household. <laughs> my sisters, I don't really remember this too much. I remember some of it, but my sisters used to tell me, you know, Brandon, like when you used to go into the bathroom or you used to sing in the shower, like I would blare Whitney Houston. <laughs> <laughs> I think that may have been the first sign that I might have been gay. <laughs> but um yeah, so I um I just remember how tough childhood was for me at, at at points in my life. Like I remember being bullied by kids in school. I used to be called Mascara boy um because yes, it does look like I wear mascara. I promise you I don't. <laughs> I just have really thick eyelashes, but I was just so bullied. As a kid, um, because, believe it or not, I had a girly voice, and they used to call me girly voice. Um, I used to play tricks on people who used to call our house, and they would call our house because they thought that they were talking to my mom. <laughs> but it was really me, and I kind of enjoyed it back then, so I like played tricks on like my mom's clients. She wasn't too thrilled about that, but I did all the time because I sounded like my mom. <laughs> On the phone, eventually puberty hit in, and I am so grateful that God has blessed me with a deeper voice. Probably because God was like, hey, "You were bullied enough as a kid." I'll give you a deep voice. Um, <laughs> it's something I prayed for all the time. I'm like, "Please let me hit puberty early." Um, you know, I'll get more into bullying in my story down the road in some further podcasts. But, um, you know, people always ask me one of the what's the one big question people ask me is how did you become a drug addict? Like you grew up in a really good house. You grew up in an affluent neighborhood. I went to Catholic school. So I went to private schools. I went to the best schools around Southern California and uh, like still became a drug addict. And, um, I, I tell people it was the trauma that I experienced as a child. Um, Because at first, I didn't know how to answer that question, right? I I didn't know. My parents weren't drinkers. They definitely didn't do drugs. My older sisters, yeah, they'd have some wine. But, like, I didn't grow up watching an alcoholic mother or an alcoholic father. So it wasn't learned behavior. But it definitely was an escape for me uh, when I could start processing some of that trauma. And, you know, sex abuse is part of my story. Um, I was sexually abused um, by two people in my life. Uh, one person I was sexually abused by every Friday was my piano teacher. Um, every Friday I had a piano lesson. I would come home from school and, you know, I would be fine and I, I would run home. I would go into the house on Friday afternoon. That's typically like when kids are out in the streets and they're playing and they're having a good time. But I just remember every Friday I came home from school, I immediately went into my bedroom and I crawled into bed and I built this fort of pillows around me. I was about seven, eight, nine years old at the time. And I remember just building this fort and hiding in this fort. And my mom would come in and my mom would say, What are you doing? What are you doing hiding in here? Your piano teacher's in the living room. Like you have a piano lesson, you have to go. And I just remember telling my mom, like, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. Like, I don't want to take piano lessons today. I don't feel good. And my mom would be like, you were just playing soccer today. Like, you feel fine. You probably don't like to play the piano, but you're going to learn. Like, you have to go play the piano. And so, like, I would dread walking into, I just, you know, we, as children, you know, we remember these traumas and it's like stored in my memory and I remember bits and pieces of it, but like, I remember that walk. Into my living room, and I saw my piano teacher seated at the end of the piano bench, and just w- like felt like I was breaking out in hives, like knowing what was about to happen, and I would sit there on the piano, and we would start to play, and as a kid who's seven or eight or nine and learning to play the piano, like I, I'm going to make mistakes, um, and I did. I made a lot of mistakes, and so I was making these mistakes, and every time I messed up on the keyboard my piano teacher would grope me. And the next mistake, he would grope me again. And the groping got worse and worse over time. And I remembered not telling anybody. Like, I remembered, like, every time he would touch me, I'd cringe. You know, like, I would recoil, and I would just cringe. And he would do it again and do it again. Um the other person who I was sexually abused by was my youth soccer coach. Um, There's no point on naming him. Um, But, you know, he would also grope me and touch me and he molested me. And the thing is, is that like my parents trusted my soccer coach and they trusted my piano teacher. They knew these people. And because my parents knew them, and because we were family friends with them, I, I didn't want to tell my parents because I was so afraid. I was so shameful and I felt guilty. But I'm like, these are our family friends. Like, my parents will never believe me if I told them. So I just didn't. Well, what happened as a child in that situation, I went into survival mode. Right, As children, we go into survival mode because I couldn't fight back. I was too young. I, I didn't know how to fight back, and so what I did is I just buried it deep down in me, and I acted like nothing ever happened, um, and that was my way of surviving that household. You know, um, it wasn't easy uh, growing up be in, the, in in my family's household either, despite the sex abuse that went on. Um, you know, listen, my mom was very verbally and physically abusive, Um And it, it hurts for me to even say that in such a public atmosphere, like a podcast, but it's my truth. And, you know, one thing I promised myself that when I ventured into this podcast, that I would be a hundred percent truthful. I would never lie about anything. I won't hide about anything. And as much as some subjects might be more painful than others to talk about, I have to talk about them. If as a community, we're going to help another addict, um, So, I actually think I can probably take the headphones off for this part. (laughs) It's a little bit better. Um, And so, you know, I was physically abused. And my mom um, has never been diagnosed. But I believe that my mom suffers from some a little bit of bipolarness and some narcissism. And, you know, it was really hard. She was so successful. And I, I have to say this before I go any further. That I know my mom loves me. I know my mom loves me. She just... She doesn't express it in the ways that a traditional mom or a mom that I wish I had would. You know, my mom isn't one to ever sit there and say, Brandon, I love you. And that was really hard for me. Um, It's hard for me as an adult because I was never used to hearing those words, I love you. And so it's such a foreign concept to me that, you know, when a boyfriend or a friend of mine says, Brandon, I love you, for so many years out of my life, like, I would cringe. Like, it would make me feel so uncomfortable, and I would just, like, blush, and I would say, thank you, you know? Like, I didn't even know how to respond to that because it was just such a foreign emotion praised upon me. Um, And again, I will go through some of the abuse that happened, the physical abuse and the mental abuse, um, further down the road as this podcast continues. Um, but you know, all that abuse, the sex abuse that happened and the physical and the mental abuse that I endured, you know, my middle sister, um, who I'm not going to name, but my middle sister was also very physical, physically and mentally abusive towards me. I mean, we had gotten into brawls and mind you, she was a lot bigger than me when I was a child, a very small child, Um, There were times where I remember her chasing me around with trophies and a baseball bat and it was just very hard. But a lot of the verbal abuse that I endured from her, it was really hard. And, um, you know, I just she made me feel like this big in the house and it was like walking on eggshells every day of my life in that household. And it was not fun and it was painful and it was scary at times. But it was like walking on eggshells. And what that taught me was don't ever express yourself. Like I was so feared expressing my true emotions in that house because I feared the repercussions that I would get. I feared if I ever complained or said if somebody was hurting me or making me feel uncomfortable, that the wrath of the abuse would come at me 10 times harder than it already was. And so I just, as an early child, again, Brandon, just hold your feelings in. Hold all those emotions in and bury them down deep inside. Well, at age 15, um, I started to act out, and I truly believe that the reason why I became a sex addict and a drug addict was because of the trauma that I endured as a child, and eventually it started to come out sideways, and it started to surface. And so I remember growing up in Orange County, California, that I used to go down to Laguna Beach and the Boom Boom Room. Um, it was, you know, Laguna beach was like the gay Mecca, the gay epicenter of the United States at that period of time in the, in the late eighties and early nineties, there was no like West Hollywood that, that shit wasn't around. Um, it was all about Laguna beach. And so it was this little hotel, had a bar and a dance floor and it's very cruisy. And so like I used to go down there as a 15 and 16 year old kid and I used, um, my, uh, older sister's uh, boyfriend at the time, his fake ID, because oddly enough, we kind of look li- alike. And so I used his fake ID to get in, in and out of these bars. Now, a lot of you are probably listening, but yeah, you were 15. You had to lo- look like a little kid. I will tell you this gay bars back there in the early nineties did not give two shits about how old you were. As long as you had some form of an ID, they just let you in, um, And I remember that's when I first started having sex. And there was like these stairway, there was this stairway from the boomer room that led down to the beach and all these guys were just having sex down there, like anonymous sex. And I remember going down there and feeling like this pent up anxiety and the butterflies and the nervousness. And, but I remember like I used to go down there and I used to hook up with these guys and these guys were in their forties and fifties. And I'm telling you at that time, at that time, I I didn't think that that behavior was wrong. Now, in hindsight, looking back as a grown man who is 38 years old now and looking back at a 15-year-old boy who is having sex with grown men who are 40 and 50 years old, that is rape. All right? That is, that is rape. It should have never happened. Those men were predators, and they were preying on me. Um, but it took me a long time to even get to that point because I was telling my therapist— That I wanted it. Like, I chose to be down there. I chose to go down there. I chose to go down the stairways and I chose to have sex with these people. And it took a lot of therapy sessions for my therapist to finally get me to understand that as a 15 year old boy, I cannot, I do not have the mental acumen and my my brain hasn't fully developed that it doesn't matter, that that is still rape. Um, And that's really where my sex addiction began because I was having sex with different guys like five or six nights a week. and again, I'll get more into that as the podcasts go down, you know, continue on. Um, and then I started getting into drugs and I was at a, you know, I went to Catholic school, you know, so I was, you know, and I grew up in an affluent neighborhood. So it's not like I was growing up in the hood. I know it's a stereotype that people are like, oh, you must have grown up in a bad neighborhood if you're doing drugs at age 15. It's not the truth. That's not the case at all. You know, a lot of us stole our parents' money, and our parents didn't even know about it. And we used to steal from our parents, and we used to go, and we were buying cocaine at age 16. A friend of mine, had his family had a beach house in Laguna Beach, and we used to go down there. We used to do lines of cocaine every Friday and Saturday night on the beach at age 16. Like, looking back, hello, red flag, not normal. <laughs> um, And when I turned 18, I started to isolate a little bit. And I used to do a a bunch of ecstasy. I used to go out to these huge raves in Indio, California. And I'd drive out there by myself. I'd go to these map points. And then the map would tell us where on the Indian Reservation these huge raves were. And I used to go out there by myself, do ecstasy, meet a bunch of people, and just dance all night long. Um, Eventually, I got into NYU and I moved to New York City and... Um that's when I finally like met my people. <laughs> it was like the first time that I met like gay people who were older than me, but like gay guys around my age, maybe a little bit older, and I was like, wow, these guys look like me, they talk like me, they are really cool. And so that was the first time I really felt accepted into a community. Um, and I remember at that time we had daytimers, and I opened up my day timer and I like went through my day timer and Uh, just started calling all of these people (laughs) and telling them, hey, I'm gay. Um, And I remember telling my mom that, and my mom's response to me was, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure, Mom, that I'm gay. And my mom was like, well, listen, son, it was not very empathetic. Uh, My mom was like, well, listen, once you decide to come out, there's no going back in, so you better make sure you're really gay because there's no going back into the closet. I'm like, okay, I'm gay. Um, And then I get in and then like I call my dad and I tell my dad, I tell my dad that I'm gay. My dad's response was a little more empathetic. Um, You know, he said, son, I love you, which was nice. And and he said, "Um, I do believe it's a choice, but as your father, I will love you and accept you for whatever choices you make. And, you know, that was a blessing because there was a lot of other gay kids who came out in the nineties and they were kicked out of the house. They were like excommunicated from their church. They were kicked out of their families, totally disowned. So the fact that the worst that from my dad was that he thought it was a choice. You know, he doesn't believe it's a choice anymore, by the way, like he believes science, um, that we're all born this way as Lady Gaga would sing. um, And, you know, but the problem is, is that the group of friends I became connected to in New York City were heavily into drugs. Um, And I got involved in the circuit and the circuit parties, you know, where like 20 to 50,000 gay guys would like descend upon Miami Beach and we'd get high all weekend and dance our asses off and... I definitely talk more about gay culture and gay culture and drugs in my book that is um, currently being edited, hopefully published this year. So I go deep into a lot of those issues, and we'll go deep into the podcast on so my thoughts about gay culture and, and drugs and the gay culture too. Um, but eventually, um, I my drug of choice, my drug of choice was GHB. Um, yes, that is for those of you who are up to speed on your drug lingo. GHB is the date rape drug. Um, it is a clear liquid that you could put into an alcoholic drink and you drink it and you black out. Um, you can also do enough to not where you black out and you feel the high effect, but it's a super dangerous and deadly drug because if you black out, you can, the, the majority of people who do overdose on GHB, they die from choking on their own vomit and, um, they don't wake up. And so GHB was my drug of choice for 10 years. And I used to order it online by the gallon, even though you need a cap full. And I used to j- order it from England off a website called alloycleaner.com, which is scary that the stuff I was intaking and ingesting into my body would actually clean the grease off your rims. Um, and, you know, during that time I was like raging. I was listen, I tell people too, like I had a really good time. Like I had a really good time high on drugs. For a while. Until it wasn't fun anymore. Um, And so... I stayed away from other hardcore drugs. Like, I stayed away from meth. I stayed away from heroin for so many years. Because I just... I saw some friends do it. And I was like, I never want to look like that. So, like, just seeing my friends look like Skeletor. I'm like, I keep that shit away from me. But then I moved back to California. And... That is where I went to a bathhouse and, you know, the sex addiction is like in full swing. And when you're a sex addict and you're high on drugs and you're gay, you're likely going to be online on sex apps or on bathhouses. And so I went to bathhouses and like, I remember I was high on GHB and there was this guy and he offered me. He offered me a hit up off of his meth pipe and I tell people, man, it was just like in the wrong place at the wrong time and the wrong dude and sure enough, like I was already my inhibitions were already lowered because I was high on G H B and the guy like handed me the the meth pipe and and I inhaled and I remember staring at myself in the mirror and the moment I took a hit off of that meth pipe, like I just knew I was done. Like I I knew I was done. I had never felt so powerful. I had never felt so confident and i truly felt like a fucking superhero like when i tell you i felt like superman i fucking felt like i could conquer the world i could do anything at the same time i remember looking at my pupils and looking at my eyes in the mirror and it was black and it was dark and it was almost like the soul inside of me had been ripped out like totally ripped out and i didn't care and that's What is probably the scariest part is I knew I had met my magic. I knew that this drug was going to take me down, and I didn't care. I wanted more. And I did meth for about six months, and boom, I was done. Um, but before I get to that very end, there was a month of like near death experiences. Like when I was working in LA, I used to get high on GHB in the parking lot after I got done with the newscast, knowing that it would take about 10 minutes for the drugs to hit me before I went to the bathhouses. And one time I did the GHB and at 11 PM and I woke up at four o'clock in the morning on the side of the one hundred and ten freeway in Los Angeles. And my car was underneath an overpass. It was parked in the emergency lane and the hazard lights were on and my driver's seat was reclined all the way back and I fell asleep. And I woke up and I looked and it was 4 a.m. What I would eventually come to learn is that I truly believe that my higher power and my guardian angel was looking over me And basically saving me from myself, saying, Brandon, you have a greater purpose on this life. You are not going out this way. I am pulling you over to the side of the road to keep you safe. Now, mind you, during this time period, I did not believe in God, and I did not believe in a higher power, and I did not believe in guardian angels. So that is something that I learned through going through the steps of AA that I found my spirituality and was able to reflect back upon some of these moments. Another moment um, in, that G- in that January, February, right before I got sober, I was skiing up in Utah, and I was high on drugs. I was high on GHB, and I remember skiing down the slopes, and I went off a cliff, and I crashed, and I landed on my neck thinking I was paralyzed. But I lived. And then came the last week, and that last week, I had two drug overdoses in one week. And the first drug overdose, and again, I'm going to go into more detail as the podcast go on, but the first drug overdose that I had, I cracked my head open. I had bleeding in my brain. I was sent to Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital in Los Angeles. I was in a coma, and I awoke from the coma, and the ER doctor and the neurosurgeon came down and said, listen, in about 12 hours, we're going to have to do brain surgery on you. You've got bleeding in your brain, and if we don't carterize it soon, you could bleed out, and you could end up dying. And I was so fucked up mentally at that time in my life. I looked at the doctor and I said, nope, I'm, I'm going to leave. And he goes, excuse me? <laughs> and I said, doctor, can you hear me? Can you understand me? And he looked at me and he said, yeah. And I said, doctor, I'm fine. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave the hospital. And so without any clothes, Without any clothes, I put on my hospital scrub, like the, the, you know, the hospital gown, the robe I was in. I had my socks, and I left the hospital. I signed myself out against medical advice, and I started walking down um, Sunset Boulevard to my car. And when I eventually got to my car, mind you, like imagine that picture. Here I am in my fucking hospital robe with those little socks with the little sticky things on the bottom. <laughs> I'm walking down the damn road on Sunset Boulevard at like 2 in the afternoon. Um, I eventually get to my truck, and I get into my truck, and what do I do? I immediately open up the center console, I get my meth pipe, and I immediately get high on meth again. I don't remember what happened next. All I remember is about three or four days later, I woke up in the same ER on life support at Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital. And I remember taking a a breath, this like gasp of a breath, I went... <sighs> And I woke up, and I looked above, and there was this e r doctor and I'll never forget what she looked like and she was looking at me in my eyes, and she turned and she looked up towards the sky- the ceiling up towards the sky and the ceiling, and she said, "God, thank you for saving this one and she recommended that I go to um you know i they eventually like they got they got me off the coma <laughs> off life support and I was crying in a little hospital room and this little nurse came in and she heard me crying and she came in and she goes Brandon we all make mistakes and she goes do you believe in God and I said no I do not and she goes that's okay because he believes in you and she handed me this little flyer she handed me this little flyer of these AA meetings and She goes, you need to go to this tonight when you get released. And sure enough, I took her advice because I was desperate to stop using. And I went to that AA meeting for the very first time, and I walked in, and there were like 100 people in this meeting. They were handing out these raffle tickets, and I'm like, I did a 180 and walked out. And these two guys chased after me, and they said, hey, you, come back, come back, come back. And I reluctantly did. And they said, what's your name? And I said, it's Brandon. They said, why are you here? And I was like, well, you know, some nurse just told me to come here tonight. And they're like, well, you're in the right place. And they told me to come inside. They handed me a raffle ticket. And I sat there in the back in the corner of this meeting. And I sat there quietly. And they had a speaker that day. And I was listening to this speaker. And I was listening to him. And I said, wow, this guy kind of sounds like me. This guy kind of is sharing my story a little bit about how out of control he was. But this guy had like 15 years sober. And at the end of the meeting, they said, well, we have time for one share, so we're going to call out a ticket number. And so they put their hand in the bowl, and they drew a number, and they read the number, and I shit you not, they read my goddamn number. And the guy next to me goes, man, they just called your number. You need to go up there. And I said, like hell, I'm going up there. He goes, son, you need to get up there. you got to go, man. They just called your number, and I went up there, and I looked at this room of 100 people in dead silence, and they were all staring at me, and I said, my name is Brandon, and I am fucked up, and I'm going to die And I shared a little bit about the last week of my life, and I was in dead tears, and I cried. I was sobbing like a little baby, and I went and sat down at the end of that meeting. The meeting ended when I sat down. A line of people came up to me to shake my hand, introduce themselves to me, and they all said thank you. Thank you for being here. You're the most important person in this room. I looked at him like cross-eyed, like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? I just told you I nearly died twice this last week, and all you are here giving me a round of applause and shaking my hand and saying, welcome. <laughs> there was a group of guys that came up to me that day, and they invited me to play softball the next day. And they were playing softball at 7 a.m., and sure enough, I met them at 7 a.m. that day, to their surprise. They didn't think I was going to show. So I played softball with them, and I, I just noticed that all these guys were laughing. They were having a great time. And I said, man, like, they're all laughing. They're having a good time, Like, and they're all sober, and they look like me. They're tatted up. They're, they're athletic. They're playing softball. And then they said, Hey Brandon, like what are you doing this afternoon? Like, come to lunch with us. So I went to lunch with them. And after lunch, we went to a meeting. And then the next day they're like, Hey, Brandon, come play softball with us. And I did. And we went to a meeting. And little did I know they never preached sobriety to me. They never preached A meetings to me. No, these guys were just showing me how great life has, is for them, sober, laughing, having a good time. And they were showing me how the program works, how AA works. They were showing me how great their life is sober. And, you know, like when I got that first chip, when I got my, my welcome chip, my 24-hour sober chip, I still have that chip, by the way. It was, I held that thing so damn near. I made sure I never lost it. I kept it near and dear to my heart. Because I remember looking at the guy next to me who was celebrating 60 days at a meeting, and I was like, damn, how did you do that? That's a friggin' miracle, man. Like, I wish I could get 60 days sober, 60 days without a drink, 60 days without a drug seemed like a lifetime to me. And... (laughs) This Friday on February 22nd, 2019, I will be celebrating nine years sober. Nine years sober. Nine years sober. I am so happy. I am truly proud of myself. I'm proud of this sober community who has lifted me up in the spirits and, the, and just the, the the bonds that I have with people in the, in the rooms of sobriety. So listen, um, we're approaching 30 minutes right now. We just hit 30 minutes. So listen, that is a little bit about my story. Trust me, there's a lot more to get into and more details that will progress over time throughout the podcast. Um, but I wanted to qualify. I wanted to introduce myself to people who may not have ever watched me on the news or may not know anything about me, but that's a little bit of my qualifying story. Um, we're going to talk about uh, child sex abuse. We're going to talk about uh, drug addiction. We're going to talk about alcoholism. We're going to talk about sex addiction. We're going to talk about all those things on this podcast. These are all part of my story. And I am so blessed and so grateful to say that I have, I am no longer a sex addict. I am no longer a drug addict. That I have, used Use the 12 Steps to overcome a lot of this stuff. I am in intense therapy even to this day. Therapy has been a blessing in my life. I want to share all of that with you. I want to share all of my knowledge with you. I'm going to have amazing guests on this show from recovery and addiction. And these are people who are going to help answer even some of your questions. So I just want to say thank you as raw and real as this is about to be. I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen with this podcast, um, but I promise you I'm going to give you my all. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be transparent, and um, it's all about just saving one person, saving one person's life. That's all what it's about. It's, it's, that's it, and we got we to gotta remove the shame and remove the stigma of addiction, And we can only do that by coming forward and speaking our truth and sharing our stories without fear of repercussions of what society may do or how they may react. Because saving our lives is more important than any job. So thank you for joining the podcast, Escaping Rock Bottom, www.escapingrockbottom.com. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on my website. You can find it on iTunes and SoundCloud share it tell people about it let's grow this community and uh let's have some fun <laughs> thanks you guys see ya